This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. This is the first half of my conversation with Scottish historian Chris Bambry. In the first half, we talk about the now common recourse of SNP politicians to the Irish Free State as a model for a newly independent Scotland. In the second half, for Patreon subscribers, we examine how the founding fathers of Scottish nationalism envisaged their own project as one that existed entirely within the British Empire and the commonalities that holds for the SNP leadership's new vision for an independent Scotland. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Conta.Scot. I'm joined today by historian Chris Banbury, author of, among other books, A People's History of Scotland from Vaso, to discuss a couple of contemporary historical controversies that have broken out around modern Scottish politics. Um, the first concerning the SNP MP for Western Bartonshire, Martin Doherty-Hughes, who is the latest uh, Scottish, Scottish National Party politician to use the Irish Free State of 100 years ago as a viable model, so he claims, for a newly independent Scottish state, an argument obviously related in part to the SNP's ongoing strategy of seeking to use Stalin after independence. Uh, and then I want to move on from that discussion to talk about uh, another article also published on Conta.Scot, uh, a review by Chris uh, of a new book examining the early ideological history of Scottish nationalism in the first half of the 20th century and how that related to imperialism in its own day. But first of all, Chris, um, these comments on the Irish Free State um, tell us, first of all, what the Irish Free State was in case people are unaware of the uh, the state that preceded the more modern Republic of Ireland. Well, firstly, can I just say I'm surprised that Martin Docker used because he's someone who knows Ireland very well. Uh, he was at the last weekend Sinn Féin Ardesh in Dublin, so I hope uh, he's been put right about it. What he was saying was that uh, for over half a century, the Irish Free State, then they eventually became the Irish Republic, had used Stirling with no problems. Now, that's fundamentally wrong. Uh, I mean, first of all, let's just talk about the Irish Free State. Created in 1922, during a civil war in which the IRA and Sinn Féin had split between those who accepted partition, and more importantly in this argument, those who accepted the uh, 26 counties of Ireland becoming a dominion of the British Empire, with a governor general representing the uh, British monarchy as in Canada or Australia, and accepted as well Stirling and the continuing link to the Bank of England. This was part of what was a counter-revolution. And I'll uh, advise people, if they want to read it, to read someone who's not sympathetic to Irish republicanism, Michael Roy Foster, who's a unionist, and a six-county unionist, who wrote a brilliant book at the time of the centenary of the Easter Rising called Vivid Faces. And despite his hostility to republicanism, Foster couldn't help but obviously express admiration for the generation who had been involved in the Easter Rising and subsequently in Sinn Féin, the IRA, Ban, the Women's uh, Republican Organization, a mix of socialists, trade unionists, feminists, radicals, not necessarily socialists. And if you read as well the Easter Rising, I mean, it's actually a very progressive, the Declaration of the Republic is a very progressive document. You know, it's giving votes to women, 
before that happened in, uh, in the UK. It's promising civil liberties. It's uh, promising uh, the working class uh, the, uh, a share in the running of, uh, running of Ireland. Now, all of this and the, the Irish Revolution, which had been fought subsequent to that, had also involved not just the guerrilla war of the IRA and the electoral politics of Sinn Féin, but it involved mass action by working class people, general strikes, boycotts of British goods on the railways, as uh, represented the wind that shakes the bar by Ken Loach. Increasingly as well, the takeover of workplaces, creameries and other workplaces uh, uh, by uh, working class. A general strike, I should mention, in Limerick, which defeated the British martial law imposed in that city. The split which occurs around this treaty is a split between right and left. Not always articulated in that way, and it's interesting in the Irish Civil War, the focus of the Republican support shifts from Munster to some of the more Western counties of Ireland, some of the poorest among the landless laborers. And there was sort of underneath it, there was a class dynamic. And the leadership of what becomes the Irish Free State, Michael Collins and then uh, the others, William Cosgrave, uh, Brian O'Higgins, are very conscious of this. And the Ireland there, essentially, the Irish state they are creating, this is where Martin Doherty Hughes and others get it wrong, is a product of defeat. But it's also very much about reversing any of the things that happened during the period of the war against Britain and the Irish Revolution. So quite consciously, one of the reasons why they accept Starling, as along with the Dominion status, the Governor General and all the rest of it, essentially, they want things to remain as they are in the 26th county new state of Ireland. They want a Catholic clerical state, in some ways not dissimilar from what exists elsewhere in Europe in the interwar period, you know, where right-wing Catholic uh, uh, clerical states are, are, are to a penny in uh, much of it. They want to retain the economic model, which is developed in Ireland, and essentially this new Irish state being an agrarian exporter to Britain and an exporter of labour to Britain. They are representing the big ranchers, the big farmers, not the landless labourers, not the working class. And the Ireland they create, the state they uh, create, is based on, as I say, conducting a counter-revolution, fighting the civil war in the most bloodthirsty manner. You know, and more people died in that civil war than they did in the fight against Britain. But also giving free reign, and Michael Collins began this, to essentially death squads taking out Republican hostages and, and uh, uh, prisoners. But the state they create is essentially that they've inherited from the colonial apparatus. They don't want any change. The judiciary, the civil servant, the police force, everything is essentially inherited from the old British colonial rule. So that first thing to say. The second thing to say is it's a disaster for the Irish people. Uh, Ireland remains grounded in poverty, uh, dreadfully low wages, dreadful housing conditions, dreadful conditions for women who have fought hard to try and win the Irish Republic, and find themselves being banned if they get married from work. Abortion, divorce, contraception is of course banned. Right? So all of this becomes a model. And even the attempts after the first 10 years, I mean, the, Britain, the, the Irish Free State remains essentially a neo-colony of Britain. And even the attempts later by Eamon de Valera, who split from Sinn Féin in the course of the 1920s, to try and build up Irish industry by imposing tariffs and fighting an economic war with Britain in the 1930s, which is eventually resolved, doesn't 
kickstart the Irish economy further that much. Ireland remains grounded in a low wages, high unemployment, high immigration. Incidentally, as well, given the vision of a Gaelic Ireland, there's a declining number of people speaking Gaelic because you know the the immigration is coming in a large part from the the Gael from the western uh, western edges of it. It really remains so up until the takeoff of the Celtic Tiger with all the problems that brought in the course of the 1990s. Uh, you know, and now you have a situation where there's been a, great, a leap forward, but bringing its own problems. Uh, and part of the reason why the Celtic Tiger comes to existence is in 1979, 1980, according to the ERM, the European Exchange Mechanism, they break with sterling. And the Irish currency takes on its own form. Until then, it had been almost the same. It was interchangeable. You could go to the Irish Republic and use sterling. The coins were exactly the same in terms of size. Uh, design was much nicer, but exactly the same. And it was a disaster. In large part, because they had no control of fiscal policy. In large part, because the Irish punt was pegged to, the, uh, to uh, sterling, which meant it was often far too high in terms of the needs of the Irish economy. They could devalue. And all those problems remained, as I say, until uh, until very uh, very late on. Anyone who wants to use that model in Scotland should look at what happened in Ireland and say this is not a policy to be pursued. This was an economic disaster zone. Yeah, I mean, there will be some people who will say, obviously, Ireland 100 years ago is not like Scotland. It doesn't have the same class structure, the same economic hang-ups. Obviously, Ireland was a state that was underdeveloped and mangled by its, by its exploitative relationship in, in the British Empire. But, you know, in the piece that we put on, uh, Conta spoke to a few um, Irish economists who all make the same point, which is that the, the currency issue in particular, but we need to remember that the, the SNP's economic plans also include things like financial regulation, sharing financial regulation with the city of London, um, not having a central bank. In fact, both the SNP plans and the free state reality of 100 years ago are the same in the sense that instead of a central bank, they have a currency board, which doesn't wield monetary powers. It surrenders all of that to the, to the, the, the central bank, the Bank of England, which is sort of parasitic upon. Um, and uh, all of those things, and all of the economists I spoke to for that piece all, all made the same point, which is forget about having a sovereign economic development. Right. And they made the point that you kind of alluded to, which is that um, even by the time De Valera came to power and wanted to enact a more populist, protectionist economic policy, which in the circumstances was a disaster. But it's not, you know, for, for the living standards of ordinary people in Ireland. But then it would be because of the, this backdrop. When he came to do that, he found that his options were extremely limited by the by the, the, the decade and more. Um, that that the the new free state was tied to this very anti-sovereignty model, and the other point that they made that I think is really interesting is that the purpose of these economic policies, Stalinization principally, was to reassure the class elements which had dominated Irish society before the revolution that their economic status would persist, and that their old economic relationships between, you know, the, there was a very close relationship between the Anglo-Irish caste in Ireland who controlled so much of the land and their, you know, family members in, in um, Britain. Um, and also, of course, close links between the smaller element of industrialists in Ireland. There's a certain mirror image there as well between 
um, you know, England is is Scotland's largest trading partner, um, and and you can see that the motivations basically are to reinforce to the existing economic and political elites that their interests will not be harmed in the transition. I think there's two points to that. I think first that it's not just simply the old, it wasn't just simply the old Anglo-Irish uh, ruling class. What the British had done at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, was it relatively solved the land question in Ireland by giving land and at quite favourable terms to a new caste of large farmers. And therefore, on the, on the Irish countryside, there was two groups, a new caste of, of quite large farmers and well as what I mentioned, ranchers who which were, you know, had big estates with cattle for export. But those, that large farmers were relatively okay about trying to break the link with Britain. But beyond that, by 1921, they didn't like what was going on in terms of class struggle. Working class people taking over the creameries where they took the milk. And so therefore they really broke and they form a lot of the backlog of the new Irish free state. Uh, you know, Michael Collins actually comes from that very same background uh, and wasn't one of the people I was talking about earlier in terms of 1916, he wasn't a radical. Uh, he was very talented, but he had no real social agenda whatsoever. The second point, which I think is another parallel with today's Scotland is as well, is the priority economically in the Irish Free State, and this is in the stuff around the Growth Commission in Scotland, is to balance the books. And that was the priority right across in the interwar period. That was a general, you know, uh, orthodoxy, orthodox e economics. And that's accepted. And of course, it was a disaster. Now, Devoera was prepared to take some measures, you know, so emulating Franklin D. Roosevelt to use the state to try and build up industry. And there was a degree of success, not sufficient, but there was a degree of success, but it wasn't enough. And I think that goes back to another problem with sort of ortho economic orthodoxy now as now in the neoliberal caste, it denies something which you cannot get away from is that wherever you look at industrialization and Britain's industrial revolution, and I include, uh, include to the extent Scotland in this was large, was unusual and being driven largely by small private firms, but you can't extract the state from that either. You know, the Napoleonic Wars, et cetera, were really important to kickstarting, uh, you know, things like the Karen Ironworks in Scotland uh, and all, all the rest of it. But if you look at every other industrial uh, revolution that's followed since, it hasn't been that pattern. It's involved state intervention and state finance. That was the model in Germany, Italy, Japan. It would obviously become the model in the Stalinist states and still is in China. But it was also it was the model in India under the you know under the uh, the Nehru dynasty, and there's never been industrialization. One of the things you know, surely one of the things we we talked about in 2014 during the referendum campaign was the need to rebuild industry in Scotland to provide well-paid, skilled jobs. No, not you know we're not going to rebuild the coal industry or the steel industry as was, but you know looking around at what skills there were, offshore skills, the universities which are a relative success story, you know things like that and how uh, renewable uh, power, how we could use that and it would require and the SNP have sort of kind of toyed with this in the past around the idea of a state investment bank and then back or a state uh, energy company and then of course backed away from it, but it would require those things. So if we want to talk about a model for independence which benefits ordinary people, it's going to require state intervention. And that, in my opinion, would involve 
not just a Scottish a, a, a central bank, but an investment bank, a state-owned uh, energy company, a state body pushing investment in the right di uh, right di uh, right direction, a number of uh, interventionist things, which is obviously anathema to the, um, the you know the people who wrote the Growth Commission. Instead, we're not referring to trade unions, not referring to community organisations, just accepting that neoliberal model and the myth it's going to create. The other point I want to make is as well is that there is a difference as well between the Irish Free State. In 1921-22, Britain was still arguably, you know, one of the great powers, if not the great power in many ways, uh, fresh out of victory in the First World War. Now, you look at Britain today, you look at the events which occurred around, uh, you know, the very short premiership of Liz Truss. Would you want to be part of all that? And would you want of the Bank of England, we should recall as well, I mean, one of the reasons why Liz Truss found the pound was in uh, trouble, etc., was the City of London finance, obviously with a, a nod in the wing for the Bank of England, were using the economic chaos and a run and survey to try and push an austerity programme. So, do we want, I mean, again, this goes back to it. one of the themes I remember in the independence referendum was saying, we want to break not just from the dominance of the city of London and finance in terms of an overall British economy, which we do, but also this revolving door between the Bank of England, the Treasury and the city of London, whereby it's the same people just moving around, directing for uh, economic policy, directing financial policy. So if we were to emulate the, uh, the Irish Free State, we'd simply be staying where we were, and those same people would still be running, uh, dominating things in Scotland. Uh, you know, and we'd probably be under pressure to have an austerity programme, which, you know, would attack the very people who vote for independence so much in Glasgow, Dundee and other places. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contrascott.